New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Intuition, what is it and how can we better tap into it for our creative endeavors? Whether you believe intuition is our soul speaking to us or that it's coming to us from a greater field of universal wisdom and knowledge, intuition has been proven to assist us in the betterment of our lives and that of the human condition. Today we'll be exploring examples of how intuition can bring us powerful and enlightened insights with our guest, Colleen Morrow. Colleen Morrow is the founder and former editor-in-chief of Intuition Magazine, published from 1988 to 2001. It explored the potential of the mind and the many varied ways of intuitive knowing and featured research and how-to information on intuition, inspiration, and telepathy for the general reader. She is the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. Join us for the next hour as we explore the nature of intuition and telepathy with our guest, Colleen Morrow. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Colleen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Let's start with you're telling us a story. How did you begin to put out a magazine called Intuition? Where did that begin for you? What was your interest? It actually started in the late 80s. When I had suddenly found myself without a job, I had worked for many alternative publications, New Age Journal and the Whole Life Times. And I was kind of stumped about my next step because I had worked for all the magazines that I liked and I wasn't sure what to do next. So my days were spent researching magazines, worrying about money. And one morning I woke up and decided to take a break, that I would give myself a mental health day, that I would give myself one 24-hour period where I wouldn't think about the fact that I was unemployed. And it was October, my favorite month in San Francisco, and that I would go out into the garden, plant some bulbs, and just enjoy the day. So I was planting bulbs and just puttering around in my garden when I had a type of intuitive experience that I'd never had before. A sentence suddenly flashed through my mind, and the sentence was, the Center for Applied Intuition. And I had always accessed intuitive information through feelings or some type of body-based sensation. And this was a purely mental experience. The words seemed to have been dropped right into my brain, and it certainly made no logical sense. I knew about the center, and I had met Bill Couts, the founder, and I knew he had a tiny little two-room office that he conducted intuition trainings and set um, 
expert intuitives out to do business consulting, and I couldn't imagine why I would go there and what could be possible there other than some sort of administrative duty, which I, was, I knew I wasn't interested in. So I mulled it over for a few days, and then I thought, well, why not? And I called him up, and I asked him to send me information about the center's activities. I got a big manila envelope in the mail a couple of days later, dumped it out on my dining room table, and out came a bunch of brochures and a typewritten journal called Applied Sci. So I sat down to read the journal. It was about intuition and creativity, and I thought, wow, this could be a real magazine. We'd have to change the name and spiff it up, but I think a lot of people would be interested in this. He sent it out only to his center's 200 members, called him up, made an appointment, went over and just pitched him on my idea. He lit up and said that he had thought about it forever. The right person had never appeared. I went home, banged out a proposal, came back the next day, and I was suddenly launching a new magazine. And when I think about it now, there's three interesting parts to this story. One is I never could have gotten there through the rational mind. Never in a million years would it have occurred to me to go talk to him if I was looking for a magazine job. I also got something better than what I was looking for. And I couldn't have seen that in the next 10 years, there would be a flood of information on intuition in the magazine provided a focal point. I got two issues out for the center, and then he decided to close the center, sign the rights over to me, and I later got a grant, which allowed me to set up an office and a, and a staff. And I continued it until the year 2001. That's fantastic. A great story. And so what is intuition? What Can you describe it? What, sure. what is it? Sure. I see our personal intuition as being able to give us information beyond the rational mind about our day-to-day -day lives, our work, our relationships, and so on. You might call it horizontal intuition because it's about our physical world. And a lot of it is gut feelings. And we were giving people permission to pay attention to that. It's a a type of knowing that we had before that we learned to discount with the rise of the scientific worldview. So people were starting to listen to that again and really utilize this skill that they have in their day-to-day -day lives. And, and when you talk about gut feeling, like this became um, very popular in business to, to go with your gut feeling right. and to tap into that. So, so that's a kind of form of, of intuition. And then there's the mental intuition, mm -hmm. which... Can you describe what that is? Sure. I think that what people did in the 90s, what they were focused on, was primarily this personal type of intuition, which is largely instinctual gut feelings. And it was always relegated to feminine, you know, that it was just women's intuition and businessmen use it, detectives used it, but no prominent person would ever admit to making a decision other than by rational means. And so it sort of came out of the closet. And I got a big kick out of seeing how politicians were talking about it all of a sudden. George Bush talked about being a gut player and his Homeland, Homeland Security um, director, Michael Chertoff, said at a press conference that he had a gut feeling that we were going to be attacked that summer, and we weren't. But, you know, the years earlier, nobody would have dared to do that. And so I see it as a way of perceiving the physical world with flashes of higher insights. But it's mostly the kind of personal intuition. And there is a higher intuition, which is what the subject of my book addresses. So in the mental intuition that um, I, I know you've described different kind of like ESP or, or, mm -hmm. or 
that sort of thing going mm-hmm. on that 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 we can train ourselves in some sort of mental capacity to have greater intuition is mm-hmm. am i seeing that correctly well i think that a lot of what we call clairvoyance and esp and remote viewing comes from that instinctive level that it's possible to access a higher level and that is a mind training process that all traditions have as the core of their teachings. I remember back in the 70s, um, there was something called mind dynamics. It was something that was around before uh, Est came around, before Warner Earhart started Est, and he was involved in mind dynamics. And why I remember that is because I met Michael right at this time when all of this was going on. And I was so amazed at how... They had a practice, those people that went through mind dynamics would have a practice of tuning in to somebody they didn't know and to, to, to scan their body. It was kind of like medical intuition, scan their body and find what their ailment was. And, and it was very highly, highly successful. Mm-hmm. Do you recall that? Uh, vaguely, vaguely. Yeah. And I think, again, that it's coming from the instinctual level. Right. That all that type of psychism comes from that level. So you, what you are talking about is another level, and you call it spiritual telepathy. Mm-hmm. So it, what is the difference? Before we go into spiritual telepathy, mm-hmm. what's the difference between intuition and telepathy? Well, intuition is perceiving and telepathy is communicating. Okay. Intuition is perceiving and that's like receiving. Mm -hmm. And telepathy is is communicating. communicating. So it's more of a two-way street. Correct. You send it out, you receive it and send, you both send and receive. Right. Okay. So spiritual telepathy, what does that encounter? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how I came to research this. I started to study the Ageless Wisdom teachings in the year 2001 when I folded the magazine. And I was immediately intrigued by the subject of spiritual telepathy. And I thought immediately that this is the next step in the intuition work that I had done with the magazine, that it's a more advanced type of intuitive perception. And I really saw it as sort of the next wave coming. You can define spiritual telepathy as communication from the soul or from the higher levels, that the soul is the portal to the universal or divine mind. And once we extend our attention upward, we have access to all all knowledge, the great storehouse of wisdom and knowledge. So, yeah, all right, so where spiritual telepathy is sending and receiving into this invisible realm, we'll call it, and and... There, we have access to wisdom and knowledge in this way. Uh, I'll unpack, explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah explain unpack it. this It's a considered um, soul-to-soul telepathy, mm-hmm. and it's considered that, it's talked about as though the soul really is our highest source of direction and guidance, that it knows our higher purpose, that um, it is the really the highest level of information that we can receive. And it is this, the portal, as I said before, to the even higher realms, to the universal or divine mind, 
which is the storehouse of all wisdom and knowledge. And it was really fascinating, and I can, we'll probably get into this later, to see how this experience relates to the greatest achievements of mankind in the arts and science and business, that many of the people we call visionaries and genius had this ability to pull in information from these higher realms. So one of my main questions here, do we have to believe in soul in order to access this information? I don't think so. Some tr- some um, traditions talk about the middle realm, that there's something between God and man, that there's a middle, a middle field. So it can be thought about that way too. That it is a type of mind training that I did find in all traditions where you are extending the attention upward. So it's sort of a vertical, um, vertical aspect of receiving rather than the horizontal. Okay, and and I'd like to go into some of those ancient traditions that you looked into. So, pick one. One I don't know. Well, Patanjali. Patanjali was said to have put uh, in the first person to have put into book form what had been an oral teaching in the ancient mystery schools, and it was all about this type of mind training that allowed us to connect the the. And lower. what culture are we talking about? India, Hindu. India, Hindu, okay. And he wrote the Yoga Sutras. Okay. And there's many wonderful translations. And he talked about the mind having two levels, the lower irrational mind and the higher intuitive mind. And the soul is the link between the two. So when we have access to the soul, then we have access to the higher mind, which is in touch with the divine or universal mind. And so he created, he taught a kind of mind training through his his book, Yoga Sutras, that is kind of a step-by-step guide to having access to the soul. Okay, and this was who? Patanjali. Patanjali, okay. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Colleen Morrow, and she is the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, spiritualtelepathy.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And if you want to know how to spell her name, her last name, Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N, and her last name is Morrow, M-A-U-R-O, Colleen Morrow. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Colleen Morrow, and she's the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. And I I know some of the people that you have looked into are the work of 
Alice Bailey. Mm-hmm. Some some of our listeners will remember her her writings. Can can you say anything about Alice Bailey and what you know about her? Well, she's sort of an interesting example of what they call pure mental telepathy. A lot of the telepathy that's being studied now scientifically, it's hard to tease that out between what's what's clairvoyance and what's telepathy, mental telepathy. And I think because it's all clairvoyance, mental telepathy is actually a much higher skill where you're able to tune your mind to another mind. And Helena Boblatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, and Alice Bailey are both two examples of that, that they were able to take dictation, so to speak, from um, masters in the Himalayas. And um, she had some interesting things to say in her autobiography about this that I was very intrigued by. She said that um, at first she just listened and wrote down the words as they were dropped one by one in their, into her mind. And then over time, she was able to really attune her, her mind with the mind of the Tibetan. And they produced, um, I think, 19 volumes. And it was Blasky and Bailey that really introduced the Ageless Wisdom teachings to the general public. These had once been secret teachings that only initiates had access to. So what you're talking about when you say master, uh, master in the Himalayas, mm-hmm. you, you're talking about a discarnate No, being. actually, these apparently these were in the oh, body. Okay, yeah. in mm-hmm. the body. Okay, mm-hmm. so it was non-local. It was mind to mind, mind true mind to mind telepathy, okay. which is a higher skill than what, what we're mostly calling telepathy, because most of what we're calling, as I mentioned, really is clairvoyance. And it's very hard scientifically to separate the two. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a whole rash of people what, doing what they call channeling, where mm-hmm. they would um, say that, okay, I'm, I'm downloading this from a discarnate being. In right. fact, I think the Course in Miracles is said to have come through that kind of— I think that's actually another good example of pure mind-to-mind telepathy, because she didn't actually have an entity speaking through her. She got it directly mind-to-mind. Uh-huh. But it was from a discarnate mind. That, that in particular. In that particular, yeah. in uh-huh. Course in Miracles. Right, right, right. right. So— um, some of the some of the people that you've looked into are, are Pythagoras and Plato. So, mm-hmm. can you say anything about what how they held all of this? Well, they they taught taught the Aegis wisdom too, and it's said to be sort of a um, golden chain of adepts that passed this along, and it was only really released to the general public during this period when Bablatsky and Bailey were writing these books. So now here we are, where we've. We have these ancient wisdom traditions, but now we're interpreting them for our 21st century. Mm-hmm. So, how, how are we holding them now? Are we using the same techniques, or are we moving beyond those techniques? Have we learned new techniques? Have we expanded the techniques? The techniques are the same. And um, what I decided to do with this book, I thought very carefully about how I wanted to present this material before I started writing, because the source material is esoteric, and I wanted it to reach an audience wider than those who are already reading esoteric books. So I took considerable time to, to look for the parallels in other traditions and found that they were absolutely everywhere. So I included that information in the book about how these teachings are the same in Hinduism and Buddhism and the Kabbalah in uh, Sufism and, and esoteric Christianity. 
And so there, uh, there's always some sort of mind training procedure that allows us to start accessing the higher realms, the subtle worlds. So, so how are they the same? How are they? There are different techniques, but the, the bottom line um, idea is the same, that we extend the tension upward, that we train the mind to access the higher worlds. So let's talk about that mind training. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by mind training? Well, I'm involved in an esoteric school. It's a multi-year program. And they take you very, very slowly, first to quieting the mind and emotions, and then you start to ex- extend your attention upward to the soul day after day. And so that's the mind training, to be able to hold your attention in the light, as they say. And when you do that, then the mind functions as a conduit. It can actually relay information from the soul to the physical brain, and it has to reach the brain to be part of our conscious awareness. So I, I think that you you use the word etheric broadband. Yeah. I, I love that phrase. Yeah. So what do you mean by etheric broadband? Well, I had that wonderful dream that I put into the uh, book. I dreamt that I was working on a project that entailed filing and collecting information. And I was working slowly but surely because I was blind. And at some point in the dream, I realized that I wasn't blind, that it was possible to work more quickly. And I woke up and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Because by then, I'd put years into this slow, very laborious study of this very complicated and difficult subject. And that I think that the information for any book or project is actually out there in the divine or universal mind. And it's possible to access that, as many of our geniuses and visionaries have done. So I could have moved faster if I could have sped up that process. And it is a slow process to train the mind to access those higher levels. So in training the mind, Colleen, um, many of us are very familiar with the mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. And we, we get ourselves quiet and, and we reduce our stress and we just go into this kind of meditation mm-hmm. uh, you're you're talking about something beyond that. Right, right. So describe that. Right. It's a type of meditation that goes beyond just quieting the mind. It's a very active type of meditation where we're actually using the mind to build a bridge of communication between the soul and the brain. And it's called the Rainbow Bridge in the wisdom teachings. It's called the Antakarana in the Hindu text, which translates as inner instrument. It's called the straight and narrow gate in the uh, New Testament, and I discovered that all traditions have some sort of concept of this bridge that, that allows us to make contact from the physical to the spiritual. And it's in the indigenous cultures, too. That was really fun to research. So what did you run across in the indigenous cultures? Well, they were talking about the exact same thing. Uh, the Bushmen talk about what they call ropes to God, and they're ecstatic dances. They imagine that they see lines or ropes of light that extend from the top of their heads upward to the big God who lives in the sky village with their ancestors. And the Aborigines have a concept of what they call the rainbow serpent. And they imagine that when the serpent stands on her tail, she connects the heavenly and earth realms. And that only an initiate of high degree is allowed to make contact with the serpent. And when they do, they imagine the serpent as a ladder Sometimes they imagine that they're sitting astride it and riding into the sky. So over and over again, I found this concept of a bridge between the physical and the spiritual worlds. Now, I know that you advocate that not that 
we all can do this. It's not just something available for adepts or, or for spiritually enlightened people, but we all have access to these realms. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about that? Sure, sure. At one point, these were secret teachings, again, and only adepts had access to this. Today, it's completely self-initiated and self-imposed. It's up to us to decide if and when we want to do this. It's said that the esotericist is always self-taught. That's an inner process. And we decide whether or not we're willing to to submit to the daily discipline that this training requires because it is a daily discipline. It's extending your attention upward day after day after day. And when you do that, you do build this etheric or symbolic bridge, but it's a day-by-day process. If you stop in the early stages, even for a few days, it starts to dissipate, and I've had that experience many times. So it is a day-by-day training. So why would you advocate that we even take this on if it's such an arduous? We like things to be easy and immediate uh, in our culture. So uh, why would you advocate that we take it on? Because of the tremendous gifts that come to us and because of the service that we can render when we do, that in accessing the soul, we do have a stronger sense of our purpose. That what I've discovered is that in, in extending my attention upward, When you start to tap into the soul levels, you feel a certain joy that's really hard to put into words, but it's something that nothing in the physical world can really compete with. And as you extend your attention upward, you come under the influence of the soul's higher vibration, and your own vibratory rate starts to speed up. And so what's happened to me is that I just feel an expanded sense of myself. Your heart starts to open more, and I just feel like it's made me a bigger and better person. So do you think that this is something that is needed particularly at this time in our evolution? I do, I do. I think it's the next step in our evolution that many scientists, philosophers, and spiritual teachers tell us that we're on the verge of an evolutionary leap. And when we contact the soul, we take our first steps into the, from the human into the superhuman realms. And when you contact the soul, everything changes. You realize that you're part of one great universal life, the soul of humanity, and that you're not a separate person. You're part of one, and you experience the oneness of all life. What, but does this put human beings in above other living, living species? Yeah. I mean, other animals and rocks yeah. and, and minerals, sure, that we're a higher, higher kingdom. And the soul is the next highest kingdom from the human. So we're making that leap and building that bridge. So it's kind of from a a, a material level to an immaterial or invisible level? Or how would you describe it? Human to superhuman. Uh And you become universal in your outlook. Barbara Marks Hubbard talks about this a lot. She calls it the universal human. And Eckhart Tolle talks about this, too, in his book, The New Earth. And they both say that evolution happens as a result of some sort of crisis that propels us forward. And Toll uses the example of an amphibian who's forced to live on land after its habitat dries up. And I think that we're in the same situation now that our own habitat is in trouble and our world is full of conflict and it's getting more dangerous by the day. And that if we make this leap into the subtle worlds, it's then we become universal and we, we know that we're all interconnected. It's hard to wage war. It's hard to, to imagine somebody as different from us if we have that experience. I, I think of an example that you've used when you, uh, a biblical example that you've used about um, a, a metaphor, let's say, about coming into 
wholeness and you give the example of the prodigal son mm-hmm. returning home. Right. Can you say something about that? Well, I had never read the New Testament before. I grew up Catholic, and you don't read the Bible. And I actually absolutely fell in love with the subject of esoteric Christianity as I was researching this book. So I read many books on that topic, and then I went back to the New Testament. And through that sort of lens, I was able to see how much information is actually really there. And so the um, evolutionary journey is described by Adam and Eve being thrown out of the garden. They come from the, the higher realm down to the earth. And the prodigal son story is about the return, about how... The sun, it goes through every hardship imaginable and then starts to turn his attention upward and wants to return to the father's home. So it's a good symbolic story about the evolutionary journey. Very concise story. I'm here with Colleen Morrow, and she is the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, spiritualtelepathy.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Colleen Morrow, and she is the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. And let's talk about uh, ref- the refining process that we need. You talk about we have to, to do these practices, we have to do them daily, and we really must be disciplined about that. What, what would you suggest we would do to refine uh, ourselves to be ready for these practices. This is something I found is is part of every tradition that we have to quiet the mind and emotions before we have that direct contact between the soul and the brain. And all the traditions have different methods, but their goals and requirements are exactly the same: purity of body, quieting the mind, excuse me, quieting the emotions, and stability of mind. And so there's different ways to do it. There's the Christian virtues. There are character refinement practices in Islam and Judaism. There's the Buddha's noble truths. Okay, now now you just went through three of them really fast. Mm-hmm. So kind of expand on like the Christian virtues. What what do you mean by that? Forgiveness, tolerance, and so on. What they're what they're suggesting is that we're quieting the emotional body down, and that's what's necessary to be able to receive to the brain to, to receive the information in the brain. And so a lot of meditation practices do this. But I had a lot of trouble with this, and this is a very common thing. Jack Kornfield talks about this too. He said that when he first started to teach meditation, fully half of his students were unable to master the basic concentration exercises because they had so many unresolved emotional issues. That when you sit down and you quiet yourself down, anything that's unresolved is going to come bubbling up and it's going to get in your way. It's going to make it hard to quiet your mind. It's said that when we do this work, we work from the bottom up, that we try to quiet the emotions first, which makes it easier to quiet the mind. 
And I had a really hard time with this. I had two people in my life that I had a really hard time forgiving. And every time I sat down to meditate, I'd think about this. And it just drove me nuts. And finally, I started to work with a wonderful spiritual healer named Stephen Lumiere. And his prescription for me, so to speak, were three meditations a day. One on loving kindness, one on compassion, and one on forgiveness. And so I did those three times a day, day after day after day. And I really did start to quiet down. I really did start to be a more compassionate person. I really did start to have my heart open more. And as I quieted down, I was able to meditate more deeply. So going going back to refining, is there any other thing? activity we need to do to refine ourselves for this practice? Well, it starts with the body. And I don't advocate any sort of particular um, diet because we know intuitively what our body needs. And as we're bringing this higher, finer vibration into our body, our bodies will tell us exactly what they need. And they need. sometimes there's a sort of um, stabilizing process. I noticed that I had a sort of an aversion to certain foods. I used to eat fish and chicken, and I got to the point where I couldn't stand the thought of chewing on flesh. And so I sort of gradually adopted a vegetarian diet, but not everybody does that. You're, you know, and again, your body tells you exactly what it needs. But I interviewed a lot of longtime pr- practitioners of the Ageless Wisdom teachings, and they all said that organic fresh foods and, and pure water were absolutely essential. So that's the body, and then the refinement practices that I mentioned, I put them all in the book because they were so helpful to me. And that helps with so the, the refinement of the the yeah. emotional body. Yeah. And then the med- basic meditation practices. In the, the tradition that I've been studying, they first teach you to quiet the mind before you get to do any of the, the more advanced practices of extending your attention upward. So it's purity of body, quieting the motions and stabilizing the mind. So it's a kind of sequential, mm-hmm. in, in, mm-hmm. uh, and there's no skipping one or, or moving no. around. No, uh, I mean, most meditation practice in, focus on the mind, but it actually works better to, to start from the bottom up. Now, there are many, I have to say, Colleen, there are, there are many teachers who would instruct us not to... to quiet the emotional body, but but to embrace it in some ways, uh, to, to not—they uh, would call it spiritual bypassing mm-hmm. is, is the term that mm-hmm. would be used. If we just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do away with my emotional body, as if the emotional body has no particular usefulness in our lives. So I would, I would challenge you a bit— mm-hmm about that, uh, that why negate the emotional body? I see it as a little bit differently because we're not negating it. We're just quieting it down so it doesn't get in our way. And again, my problem with forgiveness really made it hard for me to meditate because when I quieted myself down, that's what I thought about, how mad I was at these people. And so in just learning to refine that, to be more forgiving, to be more compassionate, is what allowed me to quiet myself down. I had such a hard time forgiving that one day I went to the library and I checked out every book on forgiveness that I could find. And one was especially helpful. It was called Forgiveness is a Choice by Robert Enright. And he talked about something that I'd never really thought about. He said that you can't forgive somebody without feeling compassion for them. And so that compassion meditation was very wisely given because that really helped me. 
So I don't see it as negating. I just see it as, as quieting down. So we can have sort of a, a direct shot from the soul to the brain. So you're talking about really going into a loving kindness, compassionate, empathetic place in our lives that, that would allow us to then be able to contact a different wisdom and knowledge. Jack Kornfield, uh, again, he was, he's been a real pioneer in bringing Western psychotherapy into Eastern spiritual practice because many of us actually need that. To quiet ourselves down, we need that kind of therapeutic assistance. And he spent, I think, 10 years healing the, the damage of his own abusive childhood. And I've done a lot of this therapeutic work, too. And some of us do need that. Well, we all know that that you have um, we have the the brain loves novelty, and we're we're a very distracted as far as Westerners go. We're very very distracted in our lives. That's for sure. Yeah. So you're talking about really making a discipline of quieting down and being able to to access a different. Maybe one might call it creative imagination. Mm-hmm. It does. It does um, employ the use of our imagination because we're imagining that we're extending our attention upward to the soul day by day by day. Colleen, I'm going to have to ask you when, whenever you say going upward in the vertical. I have to tell you, I have a little bit of trouble with that, maybe a lot of trouble with that, mm-hmm. because I don't think of it. I, I go back to the work of Bucky Fuller, and he said, there is no up and down in the universe. There's mm-hmm. only in and out. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, so when, when we talk about the vertical, that I, I have some trouble with that, because I think of it maybe as a, an expansion or a, a contacting a greater field and I don't think of it for myself and I'm only speaking for me uh, of, a, of a vertical and up and down mm-hmm. because that gets so hierarchical for me what, mm-hmm. what would you have to say about that well I think that this these are um, experiences that we we have to have that we can only know what's true for us through our own direct experience and there's different terminology expansion I think is is a good way to look at it if the up and down is is not part of your um, terminology. But I, what I would just encourage people to do is just experiment with these practices. When you talk about the up and down and the horizontal, mm-hmm. you know, it, it brings to mind the cross. Right. And when I think of the cross, I think of that place where the cross intersects, the, the vertical and the horizontal, where it intersects, it intersects in that place of the heart. Right. So when you talk about soul, Colleen, where I do in like a little interpretation for myself, I say, oh, it's the heart opening. It's for me that that works for me. I know other people my soul might really work for them. Do you have anything to say? Sure. Um, in some traditions, the soul is synonymous with the heart. And it's really opening the heart that's the first step. Uh, Thomas Mert, uh, Merton talks about this, too, about that's the very first step, that a monk has not arrived at his destination. He's just begun when he opens the heart, because that's when we're able to access the higher worlds. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. So, 
in let's go back to creative imagination. So how how does that work? Well, I see it as as the visualizing that we need to do that we can do when we imagine that we're extending our attention upward day after day to make that higher connection. So many of our who we would say are creative geniuses, let's say an Einstein or or a, a Mozart or a, a Da Vinci. Um, they they worked with a, a lot of creative imagination, would you say? Absolutely, and that was something that I really enjoyed uh, researching, too. One of my all-time favorite books was Willis Harmon's book, Higher Creativity. I think it came out in 1984. And before I started my book, I read it again. And then I started reading some of his original sources. And in this book, he talks about uh, the experiences of many writers, artists, composers, inventors, and scientists— and discovered that the source of their greatest achievements came from an intuitive breakthrough. But what I discovered when I read the full text of some of these interviews is that they were talking about their creative process in exactly the way it's explained in the wisdom traditions, that it was through the soul that they had access to this universal flow of information and wisdom. And when they contacted the soul, the information would just flow right down to their brains. And they actually used that term over and over. And it was exciting to me to see that this experience was really illustrated so well. So have you had some personal, you you mentioned, first of all, starting Intuition Magazine Mm -hmm. with this voice that came to you from out of the blue. Can you describe any other instance? Um, It was more um, a mental experience, not really an audible voice. It was just, I felt like the words were just dropped into my brain. And when I was writing this book, it was a long, hard process. And I wanted to speed it up in any way that I could. And I was asking over and over for information just to come in that same way. And it did happen. For example, I was talking about refining the body. And all of a sudden I thought uh, Qigong and uh, Tai Chi would be a way. And I don't know anything about that. But I thought, well, that makes sense. And I started to research it and found out that it does and the ways that it does and included that in the book. So I got these little downloads. Some people call them divine downloads you know, here and there. And I wish that it was more consistent. And really the the bottom line of this work is that it can be consistent, that we can access this information at will, as many of these um, these visionaries and geniuses had done. It, it, to, to access them at will, we, we would need to be in a high-noticing state. Mm-hmm. In other words, we, we would need to be alert to the information that would come it may not it may not come in the way as you say of a voice it may come in other ways mm-hmm. well I, I i really enjoy talking to people who have used these techniques for many years and one person had something interesting to say he said after you build that bridge it's like um touching a, a note on the, the or touching a key a key on your keyboard, on your computer. The information is just there. I'm here with Colleen Morrow. She's the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Colleen Morrow, and she's the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. And Colleen, you were just talking about how once we we start to practice this and, and become more familiar with it and engage with it, uh, that it it becomes more accessible to us. I'd love for you to expand on that a bit. Well, it's the high prize, so to speak, of esoteric training is the ability to access the subtle worlds at will. And as I mentioned, I, I interviewed many people who have been doing these practices for many, many years. And they all say that once the bridge is built, then they can extend their attention out and get the information and have it flow into their brains when they need it. And it, that's what a lot of these these people did. There was a great book that I found in Willis's um, bibliography. Willis Harmon yeah, again. Uh-huh. Yeah, called Talks with Great Composers. And it was written in the late 1800s, not published until the 50s, because Brahms, he had, the author had an agreement with Brahms not to publish it until after his, his death. And they all talked about this, that when they sat down to compose, they, set, they um, extended their attention upward to the soul. Puccini said that's the grand secret of all creative geniuses, is that ability to access the grandeur of your own soul. And so they had a process of extending their attention upward and waiting for the information to flow in. Colleen, how, how important is silence for this whole process? Well, it's absolutely essential, and I think my story in the garden was a good example of that. I was sort of frenetically looking for magazines and, you know, obsessively, you know, looking at my bank balance. And it was only when I went offline, so to speak, where I gave myself permission not to think about any of those things for 24 hours and just putter around. And so my brain was just quiet, and all of a sudden the information was there. People talk about like um, how some moment of inspiration comes to them in the shower. Let's say, right. do you do you feel like we need to make the petition first? We need to um, make an intention or send out a prayer or ask, do an ask. Say, I would like to have you know somehow this. Let's see, I'll try it. Um, I would like to access some information, the best possible way for me to proceed in this endeavor. And then, to, so you're making this petition mm-hmm. to whatever, uh, to this other realm, mm-hmm. and um, then you have to let it go? Is that is what... Mm-hmm. I do that all the time. I do that all the time. And I think that's a good way to prime the pump, so to speak. But it can also happen spontaneously. And that's why it's so important to give ourselves those quiet times. To either just take a walk in the evening, leave your cell phone behind, work in your garden, sit on the back porch. Give yourself that offline time when you can perceive. Because otherwise our brains are too busy. We're racing around doing a million things a minute and we won't Listen, we won't hear it. We won't hear it. Yeah. Um, I, I know many of our listeners would are, do know the work of the Finhorn community mm-hmm. in uh, Scotland. Mm-hmm. And it was founded by Eileen Caddy and, and her husband, Peter, and, and also Dorothy McLean. And Eileen, it was great. I, Eileen was really good at contacting these realms mm-hmm. and receiving information. And 
you tell a wonderful story about how Eileen had to, uh, what she had to do to get to that silence. I love that story, and I first read it in the 70s, and it really gave me a pang because I thought, why do, why do only some people have this ability to access the higher worlds? That um, It seems to happen to our saints, but we know that they lived in monasteries and devoted their entire lives to spiritual practice. But it happens to seemingly ordinary people, too. Joan of Arc talked to saints and angels. Eileen Caddy received that direct guidance that led to the Findhorn community. And um, the botanist George Washington Carver walked in the woods each morning to talk to God. And apparently God talked back. He called it the divine radio. And I've always wondered, why does this happen only to some people? I want this experience. And that's why I was so intrigued by the subject matter. And I remember just, uh, just having this longing when I read that original story back in the 70s. And so I went to the library and I looked for it again because I thought that's a perfect story to have in this book. And she and her husband and her, their friend Dorothy were living in a small trailer with three children. And the only, she was getting a direct guidance that led sort of the step-by-step um, instructions to do this garden and to create this community. So she would walk down to the a public bathroom in the winter and bundle up in a coat. And she said, as ridiculous as it sounds, it was lovely because it was the one place I could go where I had complete silence. And she did it every night. That was great. Uh, the kids were all around in the trailer, and they were probably bumping right. into one another. I mean, you can imagine that small yeah. trailer and how the cacophony of sound. And so she went into the restroom. So I, th- I think also if if people are are in an office situation, <laughs> they might resort to that, yeah. going into yeah. the restroom to have a, a quiet moment of a relatively quiet moment. Uh, I think it was Mother Teresa who called um, silence the language of God, and she considered it the most important spiritual discipline of all. Yes, yes. So also in in talking about that, you talk, you give some time in your book and in your work to encourage us to be world servers. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by that? It's said that uh, one of the first indications of soul contact is a sense of responsibility. If we do experience our interconnection and oneness, then we instantly want to contribute in some way. And so the, and, and the contact with the soul does give us information about our higher purpose and what our true service can be. And so many people find their lives reoriented to service. And I always felt that I was on that track, but I feel like I'm more clear about exactly what service I can give. And again, I wanted a lot of stories in this book so it wouldn't be theoretical. And so I talked to many people and had wonderful conversations and and heard these great stories that I put in the book about how people got in contact with that essential work that they were here to do and what a great joy it was for them. One of the stories that I love that you included uh, was the story of Andy Mackey. I love that story. I think I saw it on the news and then um, went to the web and got more information. He was an elderly man who lived in a camper in rural Washington state, and he had had 10 heart attacks and I think 10 heart surgeries. And in the the doctor's attempts to keep him alive, they prescribed a zillion expensive medications that had horrible side effects. 
And he decided one day that he was going to throw the the medications away and he was going to spend his final days doing what he had always wanted to do, which is to offer free music lessons to any child that wanted to learn. So he took the money that he would have spent at the pharmacy. He bought 300 harmonicas and he went to a local school and, and offered lessons and people absolutely loved it. And to his doctor's surprise, he didn't die that month, and he didn't die the next month either. He actually lived another 12 years, and he started a foundation that created string instruments, and he gave them away free. He taught, I think, 1,000 people to play string instruments. He taught 20,000 kids to play the harmonica, and he said it was the joy of giving that kept him alive. And there was one wonderful quote that I put in the book that I loved. He said, Bill, Bill Gates doesn't feel any richer inside than I do. I just can't explain the joy. It's just there. I love that. I love that. Uh, so that giving to others, he attributed that to increasing his lifespan. That's right. When medical, the medical field just said, okay, he's done for unless he does all this other stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. I looked to see if there was any science behind the science mm-hmm. of giving. And there is. It said that the act of giving lights up the pleasure pathways in our brain. And it decreases the stress hormones, and it does have an effect on our mortality. That's why I was so happy when I found that story, because I thought it was such a good illustration. It's absolutely, absolutely. So, in and in that silence, it's not um, a void of energy. There's, there's a dynamic presence or a vibrant presence in that silence, I think, mm-hmm. is the word mm-hmm. you use. Can, yeah. can you say Yeah, so? I think that was one great quote by Mikhail Eastcott. Um, I think this is a woman, and I found out later. Uh, she wrote this wonderful book called The Silent Path, which is about this type of meditation. And I loved that book so much, I had to restrain myself from quoting from it too much. I think I allowed myself three quotes. And that was one of the quotes that that uh, it wasn't a passive silence, that it was filled with energy, and I think gold is what she said, that it was um, the time when we got so much high-level information. So what else can you leave us with today, Colleen, of how we can access this realm of wisdom and knowledge more in our lives? Well, I would say that this is possible for all of us. It's not just possible for this, what I would think of as the special people, the people that could do this and we couldn't. It's possible for all of us that we sort of reached that point in our evolutionary journey when we can take that next step from the human to the superhuman. And I think many people feel called to do that now because they feel called to play a leadership role in the great changes that are happening in our world. And so it's just a function of practice and discipline. And what I found is that when you extend your attention upward to the soul, the soul ex- extends its tension downward. So we actually have a, um, a companion on the path, and the soul actually helps us build this bridge. And my feeling was that I immediately started to feel less alone and really understand that I'm not alone and I never have been. And it's done so much for my own life that I would really encourage anybody to look at these practices and experiment. Colleen, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Colleen Morrow. She is the author of Spiritual Telepathy, Ancient Techniques to Access the Wisdom of Your Soul. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, spiritualtelepathy.net. 
Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. She spells her last name M-A-U-R-O, Colleen Morrow. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3570. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.